This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. This week, as we've been reminding everybody, the magazine is a special issue about the path to a COVID-19 vaccine. It's online, on the Bloomberg, and also on newsstands as we speak. Uh, Back with us is someone who has been a guiding voice when it comes to the virus. Andy Pekosh is a professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Andy joining us once again on the phone from Baltimore. Uh, Andy, so nice to have you back with us. Um, Gosh, I'm trying to figure out where to start. And I got to say, there's a troubling headline out of Florida about two patients, not Florida, out of China, excuse me, about two patients who recovered months ago from the virus and then tested positive again. And so again, you know, we're all getting a little bit nervous about this virus and its ability to linger on and reappear. Tell me a little bit about your thinking about that. Yeah, no, it's it's one of, I mean, there's so many important questions that need to be investigated, but one of the critical ones um, is if you've gotten infected, um, are you protected from reinfection, and if so, for how long? And the reason this is an interesting and important question is when we look at some of the other coronaviruses that infect humans, we sort of see two different stories. We see the ones that cause very severe disease give you some immunity that um, presumably will protect you from reinfection. But the ones that cause mild disease, uh, many people can have um, reinfections um, after a few months or even a year. And this coronavirus, the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, causes both types of disease. So the real concern is that we're getting people that are uh, infected and they're either mounting a really strong, long-lasting immune response, or maybe they're not mounting a very long-lived response at all, and they might be susceptible again in a few months. So these are the kind of questions that only take time to answer because there hasn't been enough time for us to really monitor people who are getting reinfected yet. Um, and it, but, but again, it's one of the most important questions to address in terms of understanding how this uh, epidemic is going to progress. First of all, uh, Dr. Petkosh, it's so good to talk to you because I hear you on radio and surveillance all the time. So you're kind of like the COVID uh, celebrity to me right now. So this is pretty exciting. <laughs> um, I, I guess my, my concern with the reinfection and the antibody thing is why does it affect people so differently? I've heard many different thoughts, um, such as, I don't know, like your blood type. Um, if you got the disease really badly, you have better antibodies and then maybe more immunity. If it was a light uh, virus, then you have less. What's the reality? Well, one of the things that we're, we're pretty clear about is that If you're in particular age groups, and so if you're over the age of 50, for instance, um, if you have a number of secondary conditions, such as heart disease and respiratory conditions, um, and there's good data suggesting that if you're male as opposed to being female, um, you are going to be more prone to having the disease and and severe forms of the disease. So that's probably telling us there's something about um, being in a, a slightly older 
and in these uh, groups that have secondary um, medical conditions that's making you more susceptible to the severe disease. What we don't understand is exactly what those mechanisms are that are being activated. Um, it's also interesting that many of the severe cases of COVID-19 um, occur a week or 10 days after you initially get infected, and there's not a lot of virus in those people at the time that they're suffering the very severe disease. So we really do think that the virus has somehow early on turned your immune system into something that is um, overactive, that's causing some protection in terms of preventing the virus from replicating, but can't be scaled back fast enough so then it starts to cause damage to your lungs and eventually to other organs. Mm. And understanding what that trigger is that causes your immune system to sort of go um, overactive is, one of the, is another one of the really important questions that are being addressed now. Well, we've also seen um, Europe, for example, start to talk about more quarantining, uh, shutting down different areas. We have a spike in German cases that, that we got was reported overnight versus here in the U.S. where things seem to be leveling off. Do, do we know who has it worse right now? Yeah, you know, we, we were always, we, we should have always been prepared for a stage in the epidemic where we would be dealing with cases, but they would be at a low enough number so that extensive testing and contact tracing of people who were infected would be able to limit uh, the spread of the virus. Um, many places in Europe, um, New Zealand is actually another great example right now, were, were relatively uh, low in cases for a while and are seeing some upticks. Um, that's not completely unexpected, but what needs to be in place is that testing and contact tracing network that will then identify and limit those cases by using individual isolation, as opposed to what we had to do here in the U.S., which is shut down entire cities and states um, because the virus was so widespread that there was no way to identify just individuals and keep them from spreading the virus. So we'd like to get to that stage. Um, many parts of the U.S. are seeing leveling of cases, but they're leveling off at, a, at um, uh, numbers that are way too high for us to be able to handle with our medical infrastructure. They need to go down to get to manageable levels before we can uh, have these other public health interventions really sort of come in and effectively work to keep the virus down. Okay, doctor, I teased it. School, 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 school. I have a six-year-old. She's going into first grade. She's in public school. Um, what's the risk for me in the fall? Yeah, you know, again, such an important question. I mean, the things that we know are that, um, first of all, you've got to have community control of, the, of infections before you can even think about opening schools. You know, schools by their nature are exactly the types of places that you don't want to um, have open when you have rampant virus spreading in the community because you have people getting together in small rooms, coming in close contact with each other at schools. You're constantly talking and putting virus potentially in the air. So you have to have control of infections in your community before you can think about opening schools. Um, the other thing about uh, kids are, uh, you know, I think we initially were a little bit um, 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 not so concerned about children because it didn't look like kids were getting infected with very severe disease at a very high rate. Um, that seems to hold true. So kids won't get um, as high a severe rate of disease as elderly do. But what we're starting to see now is that kids actually are getting infected at rates close to other age groups. And when kids get very sick, 
they tend to go to very severe disease much quickly. So kids are not immune to this infection. Um, they can suffer severe disease. And it's important to know that even if it's something like 0.1% of kids suffer severe disease, you know, if you have a million kids, that's a thousand kids that are going to be hospitalized with infections. So even a small percentage of severe disease can turn into a lot of uh, difficult cases, um, and kids can spread the virus um, to other uh, individuals who may be at a higher risk. So you've got to have control of the virus in the community, and you've got to roll out schools in ways that maintain some level of social distancing and mask wearing to minimize the potential of spread in those environments. All right. So a very simple question, and forgive me because I don't know if you've got kids or if you do what age they are, but would you send kids to school right now? Uh, it would very much depend on the local uh, conditions. So here in Maryland, we have relatively good control of, of, the, of the virus. Um, if my school were rolling out plans where they would have kids coming in on limited days, smaller numbers of kids coming in at a time, and keeping as much of the mask wearing and social distancing in place, then I think I would consider it. Um, my kids are older, so I just dropped off my daughter at graduate school, and my son is a freshman at college. Um, he's living in a residence hall with a, a, a number of other students. There's some social distancing that's being put in place and mask reading, uh, wearing that's putting place there. So, again, and, that, and his school is in a state that has good control over the um, virus at this point in time. So those are the, I, think, I think there are ways that you can open schools, but you have to keep these basic public health um, principles in mind when you're doing it. So, like, I'm thinking my daughter, she's 17, she's older than Alex's, but, again, goes to, city, to a school in the city. But they are creating pods so that schools, that kids will be largely, especially the younger kids, will be in a classroom, and they're not going to be moving around. Yep. They're doing kind of a hybrid. They are doing complete masks. They're controlling, you know, how kids go up and down stairs. They're even doing face shields for the kids. Oh, so really? That when, yeah, they're supplying because yeah. when kids have to eat. So they are, you know, kind of going into, you know, high gear in terms of how they do it. Makes me feel comfortable, but I, but I still, you know, I'm a little nervous, Andy. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's no way that we can get to a zero risk, risk scenario here uh, because there are always going to be situations where things, um, uh, where, where, where infections can be, can be spread. But, you know, what we practice here in the laboratory is a similar principle that can be practiced in public. You don't rely on one particular thing to protect you. Uh, you put in place a number of different things. And the combination of those things then significantly lowers the risk for you in terms of getting an infection. So uh, not too dense classrooms, face masks or face shields are actually a very popular thing uh, here in the hospital, too, in terms of dealing patients uh, and, and, and medical doctors uh, right. dealing with each other. Those multiple things in place will help you reduce that risk to a manageable level. In 20 seconds, do kids recover <laughs> faster than adults? Uh, most of them do. That was less than 20 seconds. Right. Really good job. Wait, wait, wait. So wait, can I do a follow? Another 10 seconds? The Chinese sure. vaccine, not the Chinese, the Russian vaccine. Don't get too excited. Um, we have not seen the data. Um, it's possible that both China and Russia have vaccines that work, but 
all we've seen so far is press releases and uh, political speeches. So we need to see the data. We need to see efficacy, and we need to see safety. Yeah, we need a lot more information. Um, Dr. Pekash, Alex and I could talk to you for hours, um, hours. as you can tell. <laughs> so come back soon. Uh, Dr. Andy Pekash, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, and, of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So we've been mentioning that this week it's a special vaccine issue by Bloomberg Business Week, and it looks at the biggest challenges, the promising solutions, and really kind of the weird science uh, when it comes to getting a vaccine for the virus. It's all about a path to that vaccine. And one story is really fascinating. It's about the healthcare Avengers fighting the anti-vaxxers. And writing that story is Bloomberg News reporter Thomas Buckley, who joins us on the phone from London as we speak. Um, Thomas, nice to have you here with Alex and myself. Tell us a little bit about uh, your story, because this is certainly a different take, if you will, but certainly a very important part of the COVID-19 vaccine story. Absolutely. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So, Basically, the way that I've looked at this story is that I've been thinking for a long time that maybe something should be written about the um, anti-vaccinations of science, given that over the past decade, the movement has really um, exploded in terms of influence. Um, it's propagated on a number of different social media sites, with Facebook and YouTube really being the two key targets. And the medical community at large hasn't really responded to this as quickly as they would admit they should have done. But within pockets of the medical community, you'll find people like Zubin Demania, um, who's a former physician, um, who's taken to social media, much like the anti-vaxxers have, and has been using their own playbook against them. So we're thinking, you know, catchy um, hashtags and catchy fonts and, um, you know, using a lot of comic effects. And in doing so, he's managed to turn a bit of the tide against anti-vax. So I thought that was maybe a more hopeful story to pursue rather than the rise of the anti-vax movement. That's so hopeful of you. I'll take that. But before we get to that, um, it'd be helpful for me to understand the anti-vaxxers. Is that a U.S. story? Is it global? Is it more one area than another? Is there a way to kind of siphon off who this quote-unquote group is, for example? So the groups really operate um, quite internationally, and um, they're relatively uncrawlable. You'll have a number of different Facebook groups, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of them, where people gather. um, They're in different languages, obviously, based on where these people are geographically. But I can tell you that, for example, in France, it's up to about a third of people who don't believe that vaccines are safe, despite the scientific consensus um, pointing towards the fact that they are. Say that again. Say that number again. Um up to a third in, in some parts of France, which is, um, which is obviously quite, quite concerning on the, on the basis that, you know, for example, if we come back to the States, we have seen a resurgence in diseases that are largely preventable, like measles, for example. I mean, there is such ambivalence about the measles vaccine that last year we saw, you know, the worst outbreak in a quarter century of a disease that, again, is largely preventable. So it's not only the U.S. There are other parts um, of Europe and of Asia, including the Philippines, where things are not looking so rosy for vaccine adoption. Um, but it's in the U.S. that they seem to make much, uh, the, the most noise. So tell us a little bit about this guy, Zubin Demania, because he's an interesting character, right? And he's been out there, you know, basically, you know, making this viral fight for those who are anti-vaxxers or against those anti-vaxxers. Tell us a little bit more about him. Absolutely. So he 
is a former hospitalist um, at Stanford. Um, he went to Stanford Medical School after graduating from Berkeley, grew up in California. Both of his parents are physicians. And it's when he was working um, as a hospitalist, taking care of uh, patients who have very acute illnesses, uh, that he came across one of his pediatrician friends telling him about a, a decade ago that enough parents were refusing um, to vaccinate their children that we could possibly see a resurgence of um, diseases that we consider to be more or less um, preventable. Now, that was quite prophetic, really, because, you know, 10 years down the line, here we are, and we are seeing that resurgence. And so ever since then, in 2010, and having that conversation with him, he thought, maybe I'm going to try and educate these people who are refusing to vaccinate their kids in the same way that they're being educated by the anti-vax movement. And so he started spending a lot of time on anti-vax websites and anti-vax Facebook groups to figure out what their models were that would draw people down, you know, the rabbit hole algorithms on social media and basically copied them, but with accurate medical information. Can I just say, I mean, you talk about in 2010, he uploaded his first video to YouTube, and I'm reading from your story, um, and, but you talk about how he began to experiment rapping about ulcers and crooning ballads such as Pull and Pray, also the Safe Sex Song, under his online moniker, Z-Dog MD. And he's got quite a following, right? That's right, he does. So um, in the case of YouTube, you know, that's tens of thousands of followers. In the case of um, Facebook, for example, that's 1.8 million followers. So he has accrued a huge following by basically parodying a number of very popular songs. I mean, one of those includes the uh, Bruno Mars and uh, Travi McCoy song Billionaire, which he um, rephrased as Immunize. And uh, if you go check it out on YouTube, that's actually the first video he ever posted about vaccines. And, you know, it drew um, a ton of encouragement from medical figures, you know, who, who don't necessarily have the, the time or the energy or the creativity to do it themselves. It drew in a ton of uh, disdain from the anti-vax movement. And what he realized is that he basically almost radicalized both both sides of this, uh, but it created such a massive um, surge in comments and views that YouTube, you know, started to recommend the video to those who were searching for either vaccine or anti-vaccine terms. So the, the more adept he became at that, the more videos he started to produce. He's mm. now produced about, I think, over 300. Mm. And um, yeah, here we are today with his latest one, Dan, which is set to Eminem's Dan, all about anti-vaxxing. Um, I, I wonder, is he finding any friends within social media in that, you know, we've seen Twitter and Facebook put disclaimers if they think the facts are wrong? Is that happening in the anti-vax space? So it's interesting. He mentioned to me that he's having conversations with um, people that he says are the highest folks at, um, at, at YouTube and Facebook and uh, principally working in the healthcare information and misinformation space and um, trying to find out how to combat disinformation online. So they are well aware of what it is that he does. And there's a small cohort that he's a part of, um, you know, other sort of medical online influencers um, like Dr. Mike being one of them. And I think that they're all having conversations, um, certainly with one another, but then some of them also with the social media companies to advise them on how to tackle um, what is really an outright lie when it comes to the anti-vax sentiment. Yeah, and I do wonder, you know, we just talked with uh, Dr. Andy Pe Pekosh over at Johns Hopkins, but, I, you know, the medical community has to be watching this so closely because we understand this whole idea that, you know, the more that we can bring down the virus within communities, and I'm assuming that a vaccine is going to be obviously a big part of that. If there's a lot of people who opt out, that's going to be problematic going forward, Thomas. 
Absolutely, no, that's going to be hugely problematic. I mean, already, you know, we're seeing in the U.S. that vaccination rates are declining, you know, in most states below the um, targeted 90%. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, there, there are studies out, um, one out only just this week, in fact, a Gallup poll that says that about 35% of the U.S. population would refuse <coughs> refuse a vaccine mandated by the government, not mandated, but offered by the government at, at no cost to them whatsoever. Hmm. And so that could become really quite difficult in terms of slowing the spread of this virus. Yeah, it's really, really an important issue, and I'm glad that uh, that's part of the coverage here in the magazine this week. Thomas, thank you so much. Thomas Buckley, he's Bloomberg News reporter, joining us on the phone from London. Be sure to check out that story and the whole issue that's online on newsstands and on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Steele, in for Jason Kelly. And in today's Business Week Economics, let's take a look at what is happening with the consumer. We have retail sales tomorrow, initial jobless claims coming in not as bad as expected, which I feel like is the theme for earnings <laughs> as well as any eco data. Uh, Lindsay Piegza, chief economist over at Stiefel, uh, Stiefel Financial, uh, joins us now. Hey, Lindsay, help me understand how you interpreted the jobless claims. Like, in theory, it's good. Does it make D.C. less aggressive in acting? Well, 963,000 people filed for unemployment uh, insurance. So this is still an extraordinarily high number, but we have to put it in context of what we've seen over the past several months. And this is the first time that we've seen this fall below a million since uh, early March. So it certainly is an improvement. Now, there is going to, uh, looking at this morning's data, I should say, is going to fuel the argument or the conversation at the very least in Washington because it is peculiar that we see this steep fall off coincide with an end to those very generous benefits. So some would argue that because the benefits were allowing people to receive their income and in some cases beyond what they perceived or received excuse me, prior to the pandemic, this was actually perpetuating an incentive to remain in a state of unemployment. And so now what we see is the unemployment benefits rolling away and we also see claims coming down precipitously. Now, whether or not that remains to be true, uh, we'll have to dig further into the, the details and uh, at a very granular level. But that will certainly be one of the variables of conversation as we continue to see this stimulus debate in Washington. I mean, Lindsay, it's still a really deep hole. And as our story and our write through reminds us, the claims still remain above the highest point of the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, it's still pretty bad. And if, you know, we know that there's still many Americans out of work and we still are a little concerned about how those temporary job losses become permanent ones and stick with us for a while. Absolutely. And the biggest concern, too, that I have is this second wave of layoffs that could be coming. Many businesses have been able to bridge the gap early on because of uh, access to additional funds or PPP loans, etc. But now what we see is that the idea that once the economy reopened, we were going to skyrocket back to pre-pandemic levels. And this was going to be a one-stop shop in terms of the impact of the pandemic. Now we're seeing it's not quite that easy to contain this virus. And it's very likely that we do see additional flare-ups well into the end of the year, maybe even carrying into 2021. And so businesses are now going to be struggling to come up with a business plan to stay afloat, not just over a one-month or two-month period, but over a much longer-term trajectory. And what we're seeing is many small businesses in particular are unable to do that. And we are seeing now uh, permanent closures, permanent layoffs, and that could uh, snowball into another large barrier into a labor market recovery. 
So when do we start to feel the shift in government policy? Like, let's say this, you know, stimulus conversations pushed out till September. When do we start to see that in the data? Well, it's going to be a little tricky because certainly what we saw is the stimulus is beginning to roll off, that we did see a decline in real per capita disposable income. But that's not the entire story, because if we actually see well, where we were prior to the pandemic, so looking back to February data, we're actually at a higher point. So the average American is actually better off from an income perspective relative to where they were in February. Where's all that funds? Where have all those monies gone? Well, in many cases, Americans have been saving a lot of that stimulus. Americans have saved roughly about $1.3 trillion in the past three months. So, yes, there is pressure on Congress. Yes, there is pain still being felt out in the economy. But there's also a little bit of wiggle room. There's a little bit of a, a built-up wealth safety net uh, by the American household that could bridge the gap during these uh, during these talks and into uh, towards the end of the year. But, Lindsay, is that buildup of wealth concentrated in a few, few hands and that there are still, you know what I mean? We often talk about wealth concentration, and I do wonder when you say that, you know, that Americans are building up, the statistics are showing that, you know, kind of from the, the you know, high vantage point, that a lot of Americans, though, don't have that kind of buildup. We've done the stories, right, that uh, most Americans don't, or a big part of Americans don't even have enough money, you know, if they have a $400 bill that comes in unexpectedly. Absolutely. And in normal times, uh, you're right, there is there is a large percentage of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck. But in this case, because the stimulus was actually not only replacing the paycheck, but actually giving an additional boost of that $600, many households actually were able to put some funds away, particularly as we saw some of the, the debt payments um, pushed forward. So Americans have been able to at least put a little bit mm. in that piggy bank that can help bridge the gap for a short period of time. Certainly, we want Congress to, uh, to come to an agreement and, and not uh, remain in the deadlock, but at least there is that cushion to allow a little more negotiation time in D.C. before we see some sort of fiscal uh, cliff for the American uh, public. What's the right number? What's the number that we need from D.C.? Oh, that's uh, that, that's beyond my pay grade. Um, we'll, we'll leave that to the, the politicians and the voters. Uh, from an economist perspective, what we do want to be very careful of is, again, looking at that balance. We want to make sure that we help Americans during this very difficult time. Families are struggling to pay rent, to put food on the table, and we want to make sure that we provide for those individuals. But additional stimulus is very costly, and we do have to keep in mind the debt burden that we're putting on future generations going forward. And as I mentioned early on, we don't want to create a disincentive for people to go back to work, particularly in the hospitality industry. We've heard from a number of restaurants saying that it's been very difficult to reconnect with workers because of these very generous benefits. So again, we want to be able to get corporate America, small business America back online, put people back to work. It's a very fine line, very delicate balance that officials in Washington right. try to walk. But Lindsay, if you were going to the Hop Leaf Bar in Chicago, if it was opened and you were sitting down with a good friend <laughs> and you had to pick a number, just got about 30 seconds, <laughs> what would you say how much aid needs to come from Washington? Just quickly. I think a, a package closer to the $1 trillion side of things mm. is a more reasonable number uh, that would help bridge the gap, but also not continue to perpetuate this ramp up in government debt. 
All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much. Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist at Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I can't believe it, Carol. I have someone else in the studio with me. <laughs> I know, it's, it's like weird. a party. Yeah, I feel like it's a big party now. It's it's craziness. Um, joining us, Ishanali Basak. She has a great article out. She's been working her tail off this summer. Um, it's called The Age of the Everything Bankers Here, Get Ready for Odd Jobs. Shanali, when, when I did odd jobs, I mean, I was FedExing, I was faxing, I was photocopying. Like, that's what I did. Is this what we're talking about? Not quite. <laughs> okay, all right. So, just want to be clear. In the banking industry, those jobs are being automated away. And what you have instead is these bankers. I've heard about bankers who are advising clients on how to address racial tensions, for example, and how to donate to the right places. You wouldn't think that's a banker's job. And I've heard of one banker who advises sovereign governments having to advise them on face masks. What? If you're a banker, (laughs) you just have to be kind of the conciliatory to your clients. Like, you just have to... Yeah, pull up your sleeves and do what they ask these days, I guess. Well, what's going on, Shanali? So this reminds a lot of bankers of what it used to be like, right? The the great bankers of the past used to be an advisor to the CEOs of many corporations. They weren't just arranging deals or arranging debt and having a million bankers on the deal lists that they, they are on or on the league tables. So with this belt-tightening era... People don't want to pay a lot for investment bankers, number one. They want to have one or two that they can trust. Uh, It tends to be the top three banks these days, but there are a lot of boutique banks. And, you know, we just came off of a major M&A boom. That can't Hmm. continue. Can I ask a dumb question? So, Hmm. I mean, if I'm a client... um, What's my loyalty with a bank? Like, how, how how deep does that run? Like, do I use, like, Credit Suisse for SPACs? And then I use, like, Goldman for trading. Like, do I do that? Funny you ask that because Credit Suisse is actually a big SPAC bank and they are known to do that well. But uh, for everything else, you, you would prefer that your banker could do everything. Uh, partially because you don't need to pay as much if you're hiring seven banks. But uh, you want them to be able to say, hey, we think an activist is going to get in your stock. You need to do this Mm. and this is how you defend yourself or hey your stock is outside of your peer base this is what you may want to do to fix that or hey you know you're like the racial tension one I think is one of the more interesting things because that's so far afield from what you think a bank would do but how do you make yourself better positioned for tomorrow is the main question to answer well and it's about maintaining relationships right so okay maybe if you know they're not doing traditional banking you know um, responsibilities and activities right nationally you know it doesn't mean there's not another up cycle around <laughs> around the bend right when things start to recover and so you just want to make sure you maintain as many relationships especially those important ones and those lucrative ones uh, with your banking clients That's right. And I think part of the reason things have changed so much over time is if you think about the last five years when you had younger bankers, they were jumping out of their seats to go work in private equity or work at corporations. And so it's not like you have this next generation of bankers that started on the ground floor of Goldman and then rose all the way to the top. You have some of those, but it's not like the whole industry looks like that anymore. I also wonder too, you know, we talk a lot about bankers not getting paid the right kind of bonuses and then moving to the buy side. And I wonder if 
you're get if you get really good at this, if you become more valuable and what that like the key man risk situation. That's a real thing and, and something you and I talked about a little bit yesterday. It's a down year for mergers and acquisitions. So banks are in a tough time this year where they have to say, Okay, we need to look at who the best of the best is and make sure that they get paid well this year anyways. Everybody else don't know what to say, but the best of the best, Which they will try. Wouldn't it be like that every year? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> well, Why I mean, it, it's, it's not the case, right? If we're not performing well this year, right? If all, like, if you're not, you could generally be expecting to be paid lower. But to retain those best people, they're going to try to give them a sweetener anyways, is what we're hearing, so that they feel good about being there, even at a tough time. I do wonder, too, Shanali, if we're creating, though, a new new generation of bankers that you know, going forward, we'll just be doing more things and not just traditional banking uh, things. That's for sure. Uh, that <laughs> There's a debate I found through this story. Not all of the bankers I spoke to agree with the types of skills that you need for the future. So there are a few firms I talked to that strongly believe you need to be a quant and have technology skills to be a good banker. There are other bankers that think, a quant is not the same thing as an investment banker. Fundamentally, yeah. the personalities are different. The skills are different. So there's no consensus. Do Can we ask her, too, about that other story that was on the Bloomberg about big banks hiring 19,000? Yeah. What's <laughs> up with that? So another thing is that banks have been hiring in a tough time to be the, the best of the best have been hiring to be defensive and capitalize on this. There are some businesses that are booming right now. Mortgage refinancing being one of them, for example. I think one of the things that scares everybody about that boom in headcount is whether it's a sustainable boom in headcount. Doesn't mean that those are people that they will keep around when things get tougher. Remember, things have been propped up a lot by the Fed right now. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. She says, hmm. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, like, you know, we talked about the top of the show, the world continues to pivot as a result of the pandemic, as a result of things slowing down, the recession, you know, it's just, we're all trying to figure out how to make our way through, Shanali, right? That's ultimately what it's about. And they could both win. They could both be right. You're just going to have winners and losers on both sides. Exactly. And, you know, the question, too, is there's uh, so much money, just so much money flushing into fintech. And so you've got to wonder whether traditional banking is where these folks want to stay anyways. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. Great stuff, as always. And as you said, I don't think Chanel gets any sleep, Alex. No, she really doesn't. she's working nonstop. Yeah. No, I swear to God, she she really doesn't. All right. (laughs) Chanel Bosick. She's Wall Street reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Check her out at Chanel Bosick on Twitter. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Yes, indeed. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Alan Zafran, founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital. He joins us once again on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, nice to have you here uh, with Alex and me. So talk to us a little bit about this environment, because from what I understand from your notes, you see the global economy starting to show some signs of, uh, at least early signs of recovery. Talk to us about that. What kind of recovery and what that means? means to the financial markets, the equity markets, and kind of how much is priced in already? Alex and Carol, um, you, I hate I hate to say it this way, a lot of it is priced in because stocks are oh. front running, but you can see it. You can see that the claim, uh, jobless claims are coming down. You can see that the stimulus has gone into the economy. It's showing up right into the markets right now. You can see the fact that uh, PMIs are kicking up globally. You can see the fact that uh, high-yield bond issuance is going to reach a record level this calendar year. Imagine that. Couldn't have imagined that back in March. So whether or not we think it was prudent from a long-term perspective, all the liquidity coming in, both from fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, is leading to an improvement, at least in the markets and economically. The challenge we're going to have is the data is going to look very robust in the third quarter off of an exceptionally depressed level you still have an incredibly large number of unemployed people and a significant number of people living at or near the poverty line. And so the inequity that we had before we got into this mess has only gotten worse. And that is the challenge for the 12 months looking forward. So then what do you make of the 10-year Treasury at 71 basis points? Um, It's term premium. You know, at some point, people want to get a little higher return for the fact they're locking up their money for so long. But it's not signaling that inflation is materially uh, uh, running amok. In fact, far from it. You can see that there's a little bit of a um, um, pickup in the last two weeks for value-oriented stocks. Yields going up a little bit. It's picking up on the fact that the economy on the margin is strengthening a bit. And the stock market is seeing a bit of a broadening and participation of stocks going up. Economically sensitive sectors are performing a little better in the last two weeks. But again, off of a depressed base, um, it's nice to see we're going to have some growth. We're not going to go into a deflationary spiral, which would be horrible. It doesn't mean that we're going to have significant, robust secular growth. We're not there. We're not going to be there for quite a while. Where would you put new money? Uh, you've got to spread it out. You can't put it all in one place. It's too, there are too many unknowns. What seems pretty evident is a lot of the money has gone into stocks. And because the reality is, you know, do I really want, if I'm a long-term institution, how exciting is it to earn seven-tenths of uh, 1% for the next 10 years? It's just not compelling. If I'm a, even if I'm a taxable individual, a municipal bond is less than 1% for 10 years. So it doesn't take rocket science to figure out when 95% of stocks in the S&P 500 with a dividend give me a higher yield than a treasury bond. Stocks seem like a pretty good bet, but you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, there's a lot that could happen that could cause problems. So you've got to spread it out. You've got to have some um, bonds. You might want to have a little cash for rainy days and holidays as well. Well, yeah, I was going to say, where do you put the eggs? Like, how much of your eggs are in cash? How much of your eggs are maybe in some high-yield bonds? How much of your eggs are in yeah. gold? How much of your eggs are in Fair eggs? Question. Fair question. Fair question. Well, um, the answer is you got to know your you got to know your own sleep quotient, which means you got to only put enough stocks in so you can go to sleep at night. And that's a different answer for everybody. What I would tell you is this: if you're a long-term investor. Your ability to time the market is almost as bad as mine. I'm a terrible market timer. What I do know is, by and large, holding equities through thick and thin, if you have the risk tolerance and the time horizon, you win. And I think one of the lessons 
from this march, which was horrific, was people realized if they had sold towards the bottom, it was a mistake. That, in effect, is going to give somewhat of a, a floor going forward that people will be reticent to sell as quickly in this, whenever a second wave may or may not come from this virus or other events that will happen, they'll recognize that selling in a panic is probably the wrong, wrong thing to do if you're a long-term investor. And I think, therefore, we're unlikely to see the kind of unwinding like we saw last March. You'll still see points of weakness, but I don't think you're going to see the crazy volatility sharp downside we saw five months ago. All right. But Alan, don't hate me for this, but I feel like the longer I do this and watch market cycles, and particularly I feel like in the last 10, 20 years and watching various crises, that when things really come undone, we know the Fed will be there, you know, to rescue everybody. And I do feel like, you know, we've seen like, you can really kind of see when the market gets overvalued. (laughs) And then we have a correction, you know, or we have the market gets overvalued, and there's a crisis, and then there's assistance. Like, I do feel like the market is becoming easier and easier to call. Maybe I'm just being naive. But I feel like you really can see some of these cycles pretty clearly. What I, whereas I I agree with you, let me um, posit a different possibility that going forward, we're going to live in a world of lower rates of return. Um, mm-hmm. And you're going to find it's not going to be, it may be the same playbook, but the reward is going to be less attractive. By definition, it used to get 5% a year to buy a long-term bond. Now you're getting seven-tenths of a percent. So your starting point is 20-something times earnings. You're, and you're going to end at 16 times earnings. You might make some money, but the, depre- the compression on that multiple reduce your rate of return. And part of where that you're going to lose, we have to pay for this virus. Yeah. What you're going to see is tax rates going up uh, under almost any regime, both state and federal. You're already seeing that in New York and in California. There's millionaires taxes. You're going to see corporate tax rates go up. You're going to see local assessments go up. All of that's going to pull some spending going forward and in turn will mitigate some amount of economic growth. And that will eventually show up in slightly slower earnings growth. I didn't say negative, but it takes from the return. So whereas I think you're right markets keep getting bailed out, I'm not sure the reward would be quite as robust as it was in the past. It still means you should be in there for the long run, mm. but your return might be a little bit disappointing. Um, do you have to buy tech then? We only have like 45 seconds left. Great question. <laughs> you need to buy tech for two reasons. Well, three reasons. One is it's dominating the market. Tech and communications, if you throw in Google and Facebook, is 40% of the S&P 500. You have no choice. Two, in a world of low growth, people pay a premium for the companies that can grow. That's tech. And thirdly, you want to be balanced. So whereas you certainly want to have some value stock, growth are absolutely the central integral part of the markets. So you have to have some exposure to tech. Well, there you have it. Good stuff. Alan, always love catching up with you. Alan Safran, he's a regular for us. Uh, He's founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital on the phone from Foster City, California. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.